The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste. Welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast. I'm Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. In this edition, I talk to Anthony Farrell of Lilliput Press, which this year celebrates its 35th anniversary. Anthony discusses the history of the press and the genius authors with whom he has worked over the years, including Hubert Butler, who he describes as a secular saint, Tim Robinson, John Moriarty and Desmond Hogan. He talks about his background. His father was a castle Catholic, his mother an Ulster Protestant, and he was educated at Harrow Public School, where he was called a bog rat, inspiring him to embrace his roots, studying Irish history at Trinity College Dublin. Farrell discusses the pros and cons of being published by an Irish publisher rather than a British one. He also pays tribute to the 300 or so interns he has employed over the years, such as Brendan Barrington, Sarah Davis Goff and Lisa Cohen, Tom Morris, Elska Rahal and Nicole Flattery, describing Lilliput as a kind of finishing school. So, Anthony, sorry to interrupt your holidays. Um, Whereabouts are you anyway? I'm in the south of France where it's 35 degrees. Lovely. 96 in uh, old Fahrenheit. (laughs) <laughs> Not quite the same here, but no matter. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, uh, congratulations on 35 years of um, uh, being a publisher with Lilliput Press. Could we maybe um, go right back to the beginning uh, before you set up the press and tell me sure. a little bit about your, your background. Uh, where are you from? I'm from Westmeath, although I don't sound it. I, I was sent to school in the UK, a place called Harrow outside London, Okay. where my father had been before me. And then I came back to Trinity to rediscover my Irishness, if you like. Mm-hmm. Although at school I was called the bog rat, <laughs> which was quite defining. That's interesting. I think Stanley Johnson, Boris, the British Prime Minister's father, uh, described the Irish as bog rats on television oh, yeah. a couple of years ago. It was a, it was a common term in the 60s. <laughs> and how did, how did you feel about that? Oh, I felt proudly Irish. <laughs> it gave me a sort of autodidactical impulse, I suppose, from developed from my days there in, in Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, where I read history. So it was a kind of homecoming, uh, the whole publishing enterprise in, in that sense. You studied history at Trinity. What did you specialise in? Yeah, I specialised in history, uh, you know, the 16th century, um, 17th, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and modern modern day Ireland, yeah. Tell me about that background then, because I remember when J.G. Farrell died um, mm. l- last year, the, the double Booker winner, um, yeah. I described him in an article as Anglo-Irish, and that seems to offend a couple of people. Um, Anglo-Irish is apparently, in some people's eyes, an insult, is it? Um, yeah, well, I'd, I'd... My, my, my author, Hubert Butler, scoffed at the hyphenated term, really. Mm-hmm. And my father would have been a, a sort of castle Catholic family. My mother, originally Ulster Protestant. So, um, I would, you know, I would not regard myself as Anglo-Irish, but I would have expressed a lot of that culture, uh, such as it was at the time or perceived to be. Mm-hmm. So, listen, tell me, how did Lilliput Press then come about? Well, I came back to um, my mother's farm because I wanted. I got married. I wanted to raise my children in, in Ireland. There was no work in Dublin when I left college in 1972. Mm-hmm. So, like everybody else, I went abroad and to London, uh, worked in publishing there as, as an editor for various... Um, Imprints, um, 
and then came back here in 1980 when, when Maggie Thatcher came to power. And, um, Is that really what drove you? No, but it, it happened to coincide with a kind of ugly period of British culture, I think, that, uh, or a very dynamic and greedy one. But here, um, I edited for small Irish presses like Will Found, like Brown Press, like Dalman, um, and Irish Academic. So, you know, I, I learned my trade that way, if you like. You worked as an editor for... As, as, for as an editor and, re- and reader, yeah. It was when you were working for Wolfine Press that you came across Hubert Butler, is that right? Yes, that was one of the many submissions to Wolfhound that I was, I was screening, if you like. And um, Seamus just wasn't interested in, in, in the material. I just thought it was wonderful. So... I had had an introduction to Tim Robinson as well at that stage, so mm-hmm. I knew I had two extraordinary authors uh, on my hands or as, as a potential lead, so I was able to do that. As well as having read the texts and appreciated um, the fact that they were so special, had you also met the authors to establish whether or not you would have a working relationship with them? No, I immediately struck up one with Hubert Butler. I went down to meet him in Kilkenny. He was 84 uh, when we first published him mm-hmm. in 1984. And uh, and the book was, it wasn't quite an overnight success, but it was, yeah, it, it escaped from the until It was a volume of essays that, that had, a, had a major impact. It was um, hugely well received by Dublin Murphy in the Irish Times, by Owen Harris here, by um, Roy Foster in the Times Literary Supplement. So it was a very gratifying response to the quality of the work, which was extraordinary. Yeah, It was the voice. What was the first thing about Hubert Butler that stood out for you? I'm afraid the quality of his prose and his thought process um, and the voice. It was that individual mark. Um, And he'd been a sort of witness to history spanning the century, you know, two wars in Europe, uh, post-revolution Russia, um, the emergence of Ireland you know, from, from the sort of grip of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And he, he was a, a so-called country gentleman. He was independent. Um, he ran a market garden. So he, he, and he embodied the kind of liberal Protestant ethic, if you like, and expressed it like nobody else. And was he at that time almost a forgotten figure? Like he had been quite a prominent... Um, figure there was the controversy um, back in the 1950s, I think, uh, where he was with the Archaeological Society in Kilkenny and had a run-in with the Catholic Church. Yeah, he did, and he was ousted from that society because he asked a question of um, at the Department of Foreign Affairs in a public meeting, and the Papal Nuncio walked out because he was criticising the Catholic Church's role in Croatia. This is Stepanach, the Archbishop or Cardinal there. Yeah. And, uh, and and a particular individual called Artikovic, who had hidden out in Dublin, mm-hmm. and he had kind of tracked him down, you know, to the Franciscans in Galway, and then he, he was shepherded away to, to Los Angeles. And he had, had been, he's a pacifist during the Second World War, went to Zagreb after it, and um, translated a lot of the material in the open files, uncovering, you know, what were atrocities uh, in the prison camps in Croatia. Coming back to the earlier question, how important is it to um, have a relationship with the author as well as to admire their work in terms of being their publisher? Oh, I think it's pretty important. It's like it's a close relationship at the um, at best. I mean, it's it's, it's it can be as intimate as a marriage in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would have seen um, 
my individual author as, as friends on the whole, and uh, who, was, who it was a privilege to know and, and work with. Mm-hmm. I think that, that relationship, any publisher would, I think, have that relationship or should. And the first collection of Hubert Butler's essays that you published, was that very much um, collecting stuff that he had written over the, over the years, over the decades? About two-thirds of it had been published in magazines, small journals, newspapers, mm-hmm. and a third, about a further third was unpublished material. And that pattern followed through another five volumes of essays. He was a copious writer, but had this extraordinary lucidity, ease of observation, everything coming. And he'll never be able to print. You know, he's, he sold editions to, to New York, London, Paris. And why do you think it was that he uh, it had taken so long for his work to be published in book form? Like, had he tried over the years and decades? or He had, but not hard. He was very... Um, he wasn't unambitious. He was a quiet country scholar, and uh, he had his own small peer group. And, um, you know, he wasn't pushed, I suppose. I mean, he, he self-published a work called 10,000 Saints about Irish prehistory, mm-hmm. which we did a, a new edition of. And when he when he was sort of ostracized by his local society, he, he threw his energies into developing that research. And um, so he was an extraordinary man. And um, his wife was Peggy Butler, who was Jerome Guthrie's sister. So he had that safety net, if you like, of, of um, being able to get on with his work. You mentioned, I think, earlier about publishing being inherently autodidactic then. Um, you read about things you want to learn about, um, yeah. I, th- I think you said. Well, I so. want my children to read. <laughs> <laughs> and are they voracious readers, your children? Oh, they're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> they grew up without a television, which is very healthy, I think. How would you compare the London and Dublin literary scenes having worked in both? Well, the corporates took over, really, in the, in the 80s and 90s. And there are very few small individual presses in England. I mean, there, there are a lot of small poetry presses. But people like um, Seppin's Tale, Fourth Estate, you know, they, they all became part of bigger groups, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose Favour was a major independent publisher in, in the UK and still is. But um, most of them have been absorbed. And the Irish literary scene then, you've seen it evolve, like you've been going for 35 years. Um, the scene has expanded, I think it'd be fair to say in that time? Yes, it was a very much cottage industry when, when I began, but and there were four or five, you know, landmark presses. I mean, Dolman Press was, was probably the chief literary press of the, of the day. And actually, we're, they lasted 36 years, so if, if we get into next year, we'd have outlasted Dolman. <laughs> <laughs> and that was run by, you know, a sort of maverick genius called Liam Miller. Yeah. What would you say are the pros and cons of an Irish author being published by an Irish publisher as opposed to by a British one? The pros are knowing the audience and um, having the, the sort of passion of the publisher but, and you know, targeting the readership and growing it. Um, the cons are obviously financial. You know, we can't afford big advances. We are allied to, for example, the agent Marion Gunn and Connor, and she will... So books that we publish that, that can be sold on, we can offer that to an Irish author. And that succeeded in many instances. I mean, with Tim Robinson, with Hugh Butler, George Bryan, people like that, they all got published in, in Penguin in, in those cases. Mm-hmm. So we we form alliances. And I, you know, having worked in London in publishing in the 70s, I, I, you know, we still have very good contacts there with people like Neil Belton, the head of Zeus. Mm-hmm. 
Tell me next then about um, Tim Robinson. He was the, the second author uh, that you published. How, how did you come across him? Well, he sent me uh, uh, an essay. I, I, I had a series of political pamphlets, which were first foreign publications, and one of them was called uh, Setting Foot on the Shores of Connemara. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first piece that we published, a 32-page pamphlet by Tim, and it's the most beautiful piece of prose poetry, really. And that, that we built a series of essays out of that mm-hmm. called, called Setting Foot on the Shores of Connemara. And then he had just completed his um, two books on the Aran Islands called Stones of Aran, um, Pilgrimage and Labyrinth. And, um, and again, we sold those on to Penguin and published them domestically here. Uh, and they, they're now in print of the New York Review of Books in their sort of permanent collection. And they're extraordinary volumes. And he's got a new book coming out um, next month, I think, from, from Penguin. Yeah, he did a, a, his sort of Connemara trilogy with Penguin. Mm. Um, Tim is is living in London now, so I haven't really been keeping up with him, but mm-hmm. um, he's now in his 80s, remarkably. Yeah. You made the point in um, the essay that you wrote for, for the Irish Times that uh, with fiction you try to publish authors, not books. In other words, your your goal is to publish multiple titles by the people that you take on. Is it hard to hold on to authors uh, to be more than a nursery for emerging talent? Uh, it, it is quite hard. Um, let's take, I mean, Donald Ryan, for example, we signed him for a two-book deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he was bought out his next five books by Transworld Doubleday. Um, but he he always insisted that we would have the first 500 copies of any of his new books. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, we had a, a strong bond and relationship. So we do, if you like, the Dublin edition, 500 copies of each of his new books. And, um, yeah, we usually sign a two-book deal, and then if, if the author becomes very commercial, they, they move on, and there's no, you know, resentment. Or... We have a new author called Adrian Duncan, for example. We published last year his love notes from a German building site. He's given us a wonderful second book called Sabbatical in Leipzig. Um, and again, Head of Zeus published the first book after us, and they'll probably take the second one as well. You know, I think we can offer Irish authors the best of our editorial skills and uh, our contacts abroad. How has the business evolved in the 35 years you've been running it? We don't really have a formula. We publish, or we like to think we publish good good books that we, we, we like, um, and again, we have this idea of the individual voice, so that we, you know, we published um, people like Tim Robinson or Colin Jabeen or, or Morris Craig, the architectural historian, uh, Devlin Murphy. You know, they're all individuals who we grow, and so it's we have an eclectic list, is what I'm saying. The business itself, however, has grown, hasn't it? Like I think you said, you began publishing perhaps three or four books a year, yeah. and that has expanded over time to about 10 or more. Yeah, it went up to 20, and now we've reined back a bit to 10 or 12 because we need to, to you know, to market our books better than, than, than we do. It's, mm-hmm. it's quite easy to, to print and publish. It's difficult to sell, and we're, we're aware that, that that needs to be done. So we, we've reined in a little bit. And in terms of support, um, how important is the support of the Arts Council and what form does that actually take? The Arts Council came in 
during the 90s with their support, and it's been there ever since, and we're, we're very grateful for it. It was based on a, a, a title grant. It became a sort of a, a block grant by the year. Um, and now the pattern's going back to a per-title grant, I think. So, you know, you submit the material, they trust your program mm-hmm. and your record, and uh, that you get on with it. But it, we apply it to, to, to the fiction rather than non-fiction. And the fiction may be 20% of our list. And why is that then? Because it's easier to judge the potential success of a non-fiction title? Yes, you're talking about a much more specialist market. Um, history you know, has its own momentum, and that's... And memoir would be the same, although, you know, literary memoir is something that we like to uh, produce. I mean, the Arts Council, if you like, cater for the uncertainty of, of, of fiction. And tell me about the, the actual nuts and bolts then of, of reading a text for, for the first time. I think you said something along the lines of you can broadly tell in the first four pages if something contains that immediate visceral quality that that you're looking for to to have the confidence to publish? Yeah, it, it's literally um, something that makes you turn the page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you, you fairly you know fairly quickly if something is worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. I mean, 95% of what comes in stays in. I mean, it, you know, it's, a, it's a massive filter. I mean, for example, I'm, I'm doing a new book in, in the autumn. Um, I knew by page three that I, w- I wanted to publish it, and it's... Um, it's a, an extraordinary memoir um, called The Last Footman by, by Gillies McBain, who's never been published. And um, This is a kind of a below stairs, big house um, memoir. It, yes, on the, on the surface, but it's, a, it's kind of subversive of that. And it, again, it, it's sort of, um, it's, it's his journey through big house society mm-hmm. and, um, and the fading Anglo-Ireland, if you like. But the writing is just extraordinary, translucent. You know, and we have a cover, for example, that depicts our author on the steps of Castletown House in his suit um, with his wolfhound called Murphy. And he's being observed by Mick Jagger wearing a caftan and um, a young Marianne Faithful. And this is in the 19, mid-1960s. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of emblematic in a way. But it's his personal journey, and it's uh, an amazing one. And what do you think the market is for that? Well, I think it'll have an instant impact because of the quality of the work. And it's an unknown. It's bread on the water. You try to trust your instinct. You've got to love something that you publish. You've got to believe in it and hope that other people follow. <laughs> you, you create, you don't follow the market. That's important, I think. Tell me about some of the, the classics that you have published as well, like you've done your own version of Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake and Dubliners, haven't you? Yes, that's a very proud moment, really. I, I regard that as a sort of landmark for the press. Um, so it's almost to do with the book as the artifact, or it's how you frame a title. Like you know, you, you're not just sort of taking a classic text and copying and pasting and publishing it under your own oh, imprint. Oh God, no! I mean, it, with Ulysses, um, we published the first Dublin edition. We brought it home, as mm-hmm. they say, but. In 1997. By which you mean the first edition to have been published in Dublin. But in Dublin, was right. there more to it than that, or was it the, uh, the introduction? It was, a, it was a thoroughly edited text. Um, and the editor was an extraordinary scholar called Dennis Rose and, mm-hmm. and John O'Hanlon. And they they had um, worked with Joyce texts you know, since the 1970s. So their edition of Ulysses, and 
and Finnegan's Wake, which came out in 2010, were, were the landmark editions. They, they were the canonical texts. And that was something, you know, we were thrilled to publish. And then we had, we had a lovely edition of Dubliners that I inherited from Dolman with illustrations by Louis Lebrocki. It's like restoring, you know, a, a beautiful classic painting, right? Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa, choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. You've said that if you hadn't become a publisher, you'd have become an antiquarian bookseller. So, <laughs> you know, you obviously have a love for for the book as artifact, not just the the text. Yeah, yes, yes. It's, uh, <laughs> I was a lonely child. <laughs> I think I, I I was working out that I I, I bought a book a year for, for every day of my life since I was about eighteen. Gosh, how many is that in total? <laughs> Or is that too depressing or a thought? No, I, I, I probably have scattered around between various houses about 25,000 books. <laughs> God, publishing yeah. is obviously but, but, better better for us than we thought. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I buy very, you know, it, I don't buy the expensive books. I just buy... I was thinking more of the number of houses. Uh, the number of houses, yeah. Well, sadly, most of them don't belong to me. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, so tell us, you were saying um, in your essay that you collect a lot of books and dream of one day having a huge circular library. Tell me about that. Well, yes, I'd, I'd like to about round table maybe with, with multiple shelves and, and rolling ladders. So the conceit being that you could see the evolution of the book as object, you know, from the Incanabula to to the modern day, and you would have... Every year, you'd alphabetize your new books and just show how it evolved as a form. Because, you know, every styles, typographical style, styles change, binding styles, cover designs. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it would be a fascinating exercise to, to catalog books that way. What are your favorite books then, the ones A, that you've published yourself and the ones that, you, that you've bought or collected? Tristram Shandy is, is my favorite, is my kind of Desert Island book, mm-hmm. uh, which I read at an impressionable age, and it's extraordinary. And I did an illustrated edition of it, uh, commissioned from the cartoonist uh, Martin Rosen. All right. Uh, his, his mother was Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was co-published with Picador. A, favorite, a book I cherished that I published was um, an unusual book by Richard Dyceways, who, who, who actually anticipated global warming in his writings. He, he was um, a sort of radical economist, and it was called The Growth Illusion, and it came out in 1992. I think I commissioned it when um, the Green Party won 7% of the vote, and he was recommended as, as a sort of radical journalist, and um, it was an, an extraordinary sort of prescient book. I mean, the, the subtitle of the book was How Economic Growth Has Enriched the Few and Endangered the Planet. And that's actually what's happened. I mean, yep. nature has outstripped technology, and uh, global, you know, climate change is, is makes politics look paltry at the moment. You've written very eloquently um, about the the power um, of books for the human imagination and so forth. You describe them as a lever to the mind and the imagination, a release. Um, would you like to uh, expand on that? 
books are collaborative in, in terms of publishing, editors and designers, printers. But, so the writer becomes the author who's at the center of everything. But then he, you know, he creates worlds that, that collide in the minds of the reader, mm-hmm. I suppose. So you set the imagination free. And I think that's the key to any creative work. Um, and our role as a publisher is it's a craft like any other, but our role is to enable that, really, and build monuments of intellect. <laughs> now, tell me, over the years, you've obviously employed a lot of people, a lot of interns and so forth, and several of them have gone on to uh, their own successful careers. Could you talk about um, some of the people that you've actually worked with or employed over the years? Yeah, I, I really sort of should pay tribute to my interns. We've had some three 300 odd across across the years, um, who sort of abetted and, and learned through and with us. Um, we we sort of offered a mentoring service to them and, and in three to four months stages, as, as the French call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's been a sort of springboard for them. Many, many of them went on to be editors themselves, um, such as Brendan Barrington at Penguin, Grania Clare at Walker Books. Others became art administrators. I'm thinking of Sarah Bannon at the Arts Council. The Abbey Dramaturge, Aideen Howard. Some others became distinguished published authors. Uh, Elska Rahel, Tom Morris, Nicole Slattery, Greg Baxter, to, to, to name a few. Um, some, some became publishers themselves. Sarah Davis Goff and, and Lisa Cohen of, of Tramp Press, um, Rosie Keane at Thames and Hudson, mm-hmm. um, Becky Lindsay, who had a, a children's imprint in, in, in England. And these are sort of backup people. We, we also had in the company sort of foundation stone editors uh, who worked as my office managers, um, Kitty Ledden in, in the early days who became a, a, a manager of Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Fiona Dunn, who, who's now with the Irish Academic Press. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Ruth Hallinan, who's our, our present, present publishing manager. Just in, in this sort of support team, and we're not a one-man enterprise, I, I'd just like to emphasize. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we, my board of directors and shareholders are important. Of course. Um, you know, we've had two wonderful... Um, Enabling women, Vivian Guinness, who who set up the famous Boris Festival, and mm-hmm. it's seventh year. Um, Kathy Gilfillan, and then we've had some Trinity academics uh, involved: Terence Brown and, and David Dixon, who, who's my current chairman, mm-hmm. and then Marion Gunn Connor, who, who's a formidable Dublin agent, who's, who's a friend of the press. So, you know, these are sort of the hidden parts of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, we've been a kind of finishing school, I suppose, to be pretentious, <laughs> mentoring young editors and writers. But mm-hmm. um, Finishing school is an interesting term because uh, gender in publishing uh, is quite an issue. Um, yeah, when you first When you first <laughs> came over, the four publishers that you worked for were, were all male. Um, yeah, it has, yeah. you know, publishing traditionally has been a very male world. Actually, Island House was run by a wonderful woman, um, Catherine, what was Catherine's second name? Um, there were, you know, 
strong feminist influence, but I mean, Ireland has some particular. But on the whole, it's it's pretty male dominated or has been, yeah. And is that something that um, you has reflected in, say, your your publishing output, or you know, have you um, you know made conscious efforts to um, strike a balance in the books that you publish? We are now more so, but I mean, for me, writing is gender free. Um, I don't even like to know you know what what sex the author is, mm-hmm. um, and I'm very aware that seventy percent of our readers are, are female. Mm-hmm. And that you are catering to that to that market to some degree. Seventy percent of Lilliput readers are, are in general. Oh, um, in general, yeah. The, the people who pick up the books in bookshops are by and large um, female. Fiction and non-fiction, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and book clubs. Yeah, I, I suppose being a sixties guy, I would I would have a more old-fashioned view of um, of, of that world that I've emerged from. But um, I guess we're all evolving. We are all evolving. <laughs> I wonder, can we circle back to the Anglo-Irish question? Because I think mm. it's it's a really interesting uh, territory now, particularly with, like you spoke about leaving um, Britain when Margaret Thatcher came to power, and now mm. Boris Johnson is in power, whose father, yeah, as, as I said earlier, described the Irish as bog rats, a term that yeah. you were called when you were uh, studying at Harrow. So yeah. how, for example, do you think books can serve as a bridge between our two countries as a way of um, perhaps um, helping us understand Britain better and helping, God help us, uh, Britain understand Ireland better? Uh, that's a broad question. I mean, I think, you know, we live in a very fragmented sort of digital world, which is global. Um and uh, books are famously an acronym for a, a box of organized knowledge. <laughs> but, uh, but they're windows on a world, and that world is in flux. And our neighbor of the larger island, as Brian Foster calls it, is in, in serious flux. And I think we, you know, we just sh- should hold steady to our European roots. <laughs> How do you understand what's happening in Britain? It's, it's slightly an aside to... Uh, this conversation, but you know, you've had a, f- a foot in both camps, I guess. Yeah. Um, does it surprise you the way that Britain has gone? It saddens me in a way because I mean, I, I, the British have wonderful values and tolerance and uh, a, a liberal tradition, which has been wholly undermined by the by the weapon of the the plebiscite, you know, mm-hmm. um, which which Cameron stupidly unleashed um, for, for his own. Um, political purpose. I, I think it's a deadly weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happening in the north of the border pole. I, I published a book by Seamus Mallon, uh, which broadly recommends that there, there should be a, a 60-40 waiting uh, in that pole to protect the unionist, what would become the unionist minority. And I think that's that's the right way to go. It's striking, a striking thought. And I obviously... Um that wasn't the case when Northern Ireland was formed in 1921, whatever. There was no question of um, a majority weighted or otherwise in terms of that mm. that decision being taken, obviously. No, it was a crafted, you know, six out of nine counties were hived off, yeah, uh, to establish or enable that majority. Um, and I'm afraid England's got a strong legacy. I was just listening to the news today about Kashmir and... Pakistan and India, and that was, you know, a divide in rule principle, and uh, my God, how they suffered. 
mm-hmm. a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, um, is a published author himself. Have you read any of his um, works? <laughs> He's. Um, I was talking to a, a um, one from Shakespeare scholar, James Shapiro, mm-hmm. and he he's the go-to New York Post Shakespeare uh, scholar, and he was summoned by Boris uh, to help him because Boris had been given a million pounds advance to write a book on Shakespeare some years ago, and what he was doing was reproducing his his Oxford notes, and uh, he wondered what he, how he should justify this. Extraordinary advance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Shapiro just said, um, well, you're obviously good at conspiracy. Why don't you pursue that theme in Shakespeare? <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, jolly good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That was a private audience. It was very funny. Funny <laughs> outcome. <laughs> Not anymore. No. A savage clown is how one of the Guardian columnists called him. I think that's sadly true. Indeed. And also, I don't know if you've read any of Christopher Kassan's articles in the Irish Times, but he's written a very strong essay on the misappropriation or misunderstanding of British history by um, pro-Brexit forces in terms of everything from Bodicea to Mm. God God help us, um, Ian Duncan Smith, a Catholic championing the Reformation as um, the first Brexit and a successful operation for England, something which led to two centuries of uh, religious conflict. What do you make of it all? Amnesia is what, is what reigns. I mean, if you ask the average student in England who, who won the Hundred Years' War, <laughs> they'll tell you they did, but France won the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> it's remarkable, really, like the the old saw goes that um, Ireland, uh, Britain never remembers Ireland's history and mm. Ireland can never forget its history. But in actual yeah. fact, it turns out that Britain can't even remember its own history. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a danger, you know, which has been called, um, what is it, Mope, the most oppressed people ever. Yeah, is that Ruth Dudley Edwards or Owen Harris about um, Catholics in the yeah. North originally, I think? Well, no, it's about the Irish in general. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> um, and the, the role of, you know, uh, uh, Sad history, but I, I think well, you know we have a very um, intriguing and robust you know, um, culture, and that's what um, it's, it's been a privilege to try to articulate, I suppose, through, through our books. And does your English public school education do you think give you a particular insight into um, Irish history or Irish society that you've applied um, as a as an Irish publisher? Yeah, I think so. I think that's why I was drawn to Hubert Butler because he, he had this, you know, a, a very. Um, he went to an English private school, even to Oxford, but it, but he had a very cosmopolitan mind. I mean, he had a very European mind, mm-hmm. and and could speak so many languages. But uh, but but I like to think he was, you know, he was like a secular saint for me. He was a, the gold standard of what I would see as how one should perceive the world, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he also believed very much in the local, didn't he? Like he sort of stayed close to his Kilkenny yeah. roots. Um, yeah, yeah. And is there a sort of a slight parallel there in yourself as a as, as a small Irish publisher rather than, you know, being sort of sucked into working or spending your whole career in London? Oh, sure, yeah. I and mean, I, I was always on to come home and um, develop you know, my own aesthetic and, and um, 
life through books. And there are many, I, I just look at, I mean, there are many people, I mean, I suppose I've thought of Lilliput as publishing five geniuses in, in our 30, five odd years. There's Butler, there's Robinson, there was Desmond Hogan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an extraordinary man called John Moriarty, who was, you know, very far away from any culture I would have brought up with. I mean, he was a, um, a Kerry mystic philosopher, and um, I think we published eight books in his lifetime over 13 years, mm-hmm. and four or five cents. And uh, again, he had this impassioned eloquence and uh, and knowledge. He 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 had very. He grew up speaking. I mean, learning Greek in, in Kerry. He he um, had perfect Irish. He. Um, and a great knowledge of the classical world, mm-hmm. um, Egypt and the Middle East. Um, and he, you know, his reputation is now growing uh, by the year. There's a Moriarty Institute in Trilly, um, for example. So that people like that yeah. are inspiring, and that's why you wake up every day. <laughs> Can I just make sure I've got all the five geniuses on record now? So there's Hubert Butler, <laughs> John Moriarty, uh, Tim Robinson... Des Hogan? Des Hogan, I think, is the most extraordinary short story writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a unique style. Um, and once you read him, you don't forget him. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he expresses a very different part of our culture, the sort of um, the oral culture, the, the gypsy culture, um, the urban reality. You know. mm-hmm. is, is Des still writing? Or <laughs> He is. He's writing away. He's living in Dublin. Did you publish a book by him a couple of years ago, in fact? Or, or was that a reissue? A, no, we published several books by him. Uh, his recent short stories, um, The History of Magpies, we're doing the last one. Um, we, we published his collected stories, um, and there'll be new books coming through. We sold them on to Dorky Archive, and uh, Head of Zeus are going to take a collection. Mm-hmm. And we've sold them to Grasse in Paris, uh, Proust's publisher, and they're publishing all of his works. Very good. Uh, he's an extraordinary man. He's exactly my age, 68. And what about legacy planning? Because I think that's been an issue with Irish publishers over the years. You've been going for, for 35 years. Um, like, how many more years do you think uh, you have in you as a publisher? <laughs> uh, oh, at least 10, I think. I'll get to 80. <laughs> but my, my children are happily involved, although in a fringe way. Um, and, um, they take it. You know, they have their own lives, but um, they they might take up the reins in, mm-hmm, in some mm-hmm. form or other, uh, probably in a very different way. Um, could I also ask you, Anthony, about some of the books that you have coming out that you're most excited by? Well, we have a, um, a new posthumous novel by J.P. Dunleavy called A Letter Marked Festival coming out in late September, two years after his, his demise, uh-huh. uh, which is something he'd been working on for seven odd years um, and that was on his desk which we've edited and um, we're, we're extremely happy with it it's an important book set in New York mm-hmm. How would you compare um, it to his his classic works? Well it's an extension of of his his voice it, it, it's very different obviously from the ginger man um, his late novels were broadly set in New York he, he went back to his roots so this is the third part of a of a of a trilogy, in a sense, mm-hmm. um, but it's very uh, comic and 
uh, slightly bawdy and um, very resonant. I mean, it's very much the J.P. Dunleavy classic voice. Another major book that we've just signed is is by um, Stephen Ray, the, the great um, Irish actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's his extraordinary life story about how he founded Field Day, and um, I think became our, our, our greatest actor in theatre and film. And is that um, sorry? Is that an autobiography or a memoir? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a memoir called A Life in Parts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's uh, done for twenty twenty. Very good, and uh, that's a very exciting thing. Um, because the first time uh, that this is being announced, a, pod, a podcast exclusive. We are honoured. <laughs> and you have a, a debut fiction novel coming out that you're excited we by as well. By Alice Lyons, um, called Una. Um, she's a, um, an artist writer living in Sligo for the past twenty five years, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's her autofiction about growing up in New Jersey and um, coming to Ireland and um, creating herself as, as an artist and poet. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful book. And could you tell us a little bit about um, Bring It All Back Home? You um, have published um, several books by James Joyce, which mean a lot to you. Could you tell me how that came about? Yeah, when I was at my... London school. I, I was much more athlete than East Seas. I was the captain of boxing, but um, then I won a prize for literature, and I was given the first paperback edition of Ulysses in a, in a 1968 Penguin. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father lived in, on a boat in Greece, and that's perfectly where I was able to to read it during my summer holidays. Um, and it really. It was my first true homecoming to Dublin and, and to Ireland and, and literature at large. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that uh, really inspired my my future, I think. What weight did you box at? I was, I was a featherweight. Featherweight. Yeah, under nine stone. <laughs> <laughs> and incidentally, it was through my father that I, I got my first job in publishing. All right. He, he had a... A crew who was a girl called Emma Stacy, and her father um, ran a company in London called Tom Stacy Publishing. He took me on as a book packer in his warehouse. Very good. He went. He went bust six months later. So it was a, <laughs> a lesson learned. <laughs> You're a jinx. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Anthony. Well, listen. Thank you so much for uh, giving up of your time on your holidays. Ah. Been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Irish Times Books Podcast.